This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Congressional work on health care may be stalled for now, but it's still top of mind for many, many people. And that was clear at a town hall last night. Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman met with constituents northeast of Denver, and CPR's government reporter Allison Sherry was there. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Ryan. When it comes to health care, what did people want to hear from Representative Kaufman last night? Well, the crowd was a mix. So the folks on the left wanted to hear that he wasn't going to vote and repeal, to repeal and replace Obamacare. They wanted to hear him defend Planned Parenthood, and they wanted him to say he was going to whatever he was going to do to protect Medicaid. Uh, those on the right wanted to hear him say that he did stand by a health care repeal, which the congressman did not agree to. Mm-hmm. He talked about his ideas for reforming health care, though. And that includes tightening eligibility for healthy, able-bodied people on Medicaid who are part of the expansion under Obamacare. In this program, uh, there ought to be a work report. You ought to either be uh, working, looking for a job, or in a job training program. For context, more than half the Medicaid population right now are children, the elderly, and people with disabilities. Kaufman is part of a bipartisan group of representatives that's been trying to find some common ground on health care. Did he talk at all about that work? He talked about his bipartisan groups a lot. He has ideas on health care, including not touching the traditional Medicaid program, the one that existed long before Obamacare, in this repeal. And that's a change from the idea many in the GOP have backed of capping overall Medicaid spending, right? Yes, exactly. The difference is Kaufman wants to cap spending, but only in the expansion population. And Kaufman talked about making sure sick people with pre-existing conditions and costly health care needs get coverage and how to raise money for that, in part by taxing all insurance products, for example, including life insurance. Any sense if the crowd liked what they heard from him? (laughs) Again, that depended on where people stood. And actually, the crowd seemed to gang up more on each other than the congressman at several moments. Here's a gentleman who's worried about what expanding health care coverage means to the federal government's bottom line. A lot of these people here want free health care for everybody. They want open borders. They want, they want open borders. And how, do, how are we supposed to pay for all of these things? That really drives home how unpredictable town halls can be. And in recent months, Republican members of Congress have generally avoided public events like that. Uh, I think the fear is that they could turn into bad photo ops if crowds are too angry. Did Kaufman run into any of that last night? You know, for sure, there were high moments and low moments for Kaufman at this event, as you can expect for any person taking random open questions for almost two hours on a stage. But, you know, for most for the most part, he got a lot of credit for showing up. Several times, he was applauded by the whole room when people told him, thanks for being there. And at one point, a press aide tried to end the town hall when he said it was going to end at one hour. And Kaufman waved him off and said he'd still keep taking questions. He stayed there for another 45 minutes. So overall, I think town halls aren't as scary as some members of Congress think they might be, and you do end up getting credit for it. The district Kaufman represents is centered around Aurora, which has a large immigrant community. I wonder if he was asked about immigration at all. 
He was several times, and he has interesting ideas about immigration policy. Kaufman believes that in the future, the country needs enforceable, strict immigration laws, and it should crack down harder on people who overstay visas, for example. But for the people here now, including DACA recipients, people who are brought here as children, Kaufman wants to keep families together, and he says there should be a transition in place to allow people to work and stay in this country. It's kind of middle place law. Kaufman openly opposed President Trump, we should say, throughout last year's campaign. What did he have to say about the president last night? Well, he was complimentary of General John Kelly, the president's new chief of staff. You know, Kaufman's a Marine, and I think he senses that a four-star general will bring some order to the White House, um, which he did call undisciplined and chaotic. Kaufman also says he wishes the president um, would stop doing something, stepping on his own message and tweeting out directives, you know, that maybe not everybody is behind, including the one uh, where, you know, earlier this week, the president tweeted that transgendered people should not serve in the military. The Pentagon wasn't even entirely behind that. Kaufman says that the president often sort of steps on his own message, but he wants him to ultimately succeed. Did you get any sense of whether Kaufman is worried about the effect the president might have on his, Kaufman's, reelection chances next year? I mean, he represents really the most competitive congressional district in the state after all. He does. Uh, He was asked that question. He thinks he's an independent voice for the district, and he thinks his voters are smart enough to know the difference between him and the president. Finally, Allison, Colorado's Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner will hold a telephone town hall tonight. This comes after he voted in lockstep with GOP leaders last week on Obamacare repeals. Uh, That effort appears to be on ice for a while. Uh, What's Gardner saying about health care? And I should quickly point out that the fact that Gardner hasn't held an in-person town hall continues to be a huge issue with the left. An in-person one, right? An in-person one versus these. Exactly. Last night, there was this life-size cutout of Gardner at the entrance of the school where Kaufman was. So I did speak to Senator Gardner yesterday on the phone. He was in Washington. And he says he still hopes for a bipartisan solution to health care, though none of his votes so far have reflected that. Allison, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Allison Cherry is CPR's government reporter. Cyclist Taylor Finney stands out for a number of reasons. He's good, first off. He's also the son of two Olympians, and he's funny. During his first Tour de France last month, he briefly became the race's top mountain climber, which comes with a special jersey covered in red polka dots. An interviewer asked him about the jersey. How long now do you think you can hang on to it? Man, everybody wants to know how long. Just live in the moment, man. <laughs> we don't do that in TV. We need timelines. I uh, I don't know. I don't even know what the what does tomorrow stage look like. <laughs> we'll check it out. I'll check it out. I'm uh, I'm hoping that we have some polka dot shorts. Um, trying to get that maybe a polka dot skin suit for tomorrow. Polka dot helmet. I'm trying to go full. I mean, it's Tour de France, dude. You gotta go. Quite the fashionista everywhere you go. <laughs> Finney is now back home in Boulder, preparing for next week's Colorado Classic. It's a new bike race to replace the Pro Challenge, and it'll take riders through Colorado Springs, Breckenridge, Denver. And a Taylor, welcome to the program. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Where did you get this, uh, this zen attitude? I don't know. I sound like a real uh, Colorado boy in that, in that <laughs> interview. <laughs> what do you mean, it sounds like a real Colorado boy? Well, I mean, uh, this is a, a state that's that's known for uh, its beautiful mountains and its 
outdoorsy people. I live in Boulder. Um, maybe used to be more of a of a of a hippie center. I feel like that center's uh, gradually kind of moving out of town now. But um, maybe you're channeling a little bit of that. I, I want to say, in all seriousness, that you had a massive crash in 2014. It's painful even reading about it. And that was after a really promising start to your career. And uh, while you took time off from cycling, you got into painting, you started reading a lot more. And I understand you took flying lessons in that time period. Are you, are you flying planes now? Um, I actually just went and, and flew. My boss owns a twin engine plane. I flew with him the other day. But I, I actually stopped doing my my flying lessons once I started training training again just because it's a it's a mostly a morning activity um, just like bike riding and once the once my cycling started up again I I had to kind of prioritize but it's something that I would like to to finish at some point down the road the freedom of being able to fly wherever you want really is uh, is a pretty magical feeling yeah I think there are a lot of similarities in between flying and cycling. I can imagine being on a bike and feeling like you're flying. Uh, but was, was that time after the crash uh, tr- transformational for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I spent my, my entire adult life um, as a professional cyclist. Basically, I went to the Olympics fresh out of high school, uh, did not go to college, got a job as a as a bike racer was paid you know under salary and moved to europe and just started racing most of our races are are over in europe so everybody kind of needs a base there and um once i broke my leg you know that planted me back back in boulder back in the u.s and uh planted me physically in my body you know my my mobility was 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 limited and um that left me a lot of time to uh to start to go a little bit I feel like I was going a little bit crazy in my brain I didn't have the the physical expression that I was used to I wasn't able to expand my physical radius by jumping on a bike and exploring different um parts of my surroundings so I found painting uh which was which was and and is uh continues to be uh a really important part of my life, um, kind of an emotional uh, digesting of, of sorts. Um, and, yeah. What do you paint, out of curiosity? Um, I, I just, honestly, I just kind of play with colors. And then, uh, and then I, I find some symbols within, within either my travels or uh things that I've written down in in notebooks um a lot of a lot of it is is kind of stream of consciousness um so there's some words in there there's a lot of weird um abstract figures and and bright colors and uh I have no classical training so I honestly I I like to call it uh emotional vomiting <laughs> emotional vomiting <laughs> with paint, I, I I do want to say that you you have had some major high points. Uh, competed in three Olympics, and you just finished the Tour de France for the first time. Uh, the last stage of that race, of course, goes through Paris, and you tweeted the night before that it was like a dream. 
How did actually writing down the Champs-Élysées compare to what you thought it would be like? Uh, it's a trip. Um, we start just, just south of, south of uh, downtown. The whole way that you're riding into town is just packed with people on the side of the road, sometimes 10 people deep. Um, I had actually never been to downtown Paris before. I had saved it just for, ideally, just for this moment of being in the Tour de France and riding into the Champs-Élysées. And then once you get into town, um, once you actually go onto the Champs-Élysées for the first time, you know, you're riding up these cobblestone, up this cobblestone road really wide in front of you is the Arc de Triomphe. And there are these fighter jets that are flying towards you that are timed to fly um, the other direction, you huh. know, opposite direction that we're moving. And behind them, they have, um, you know, when the when planes can put out the different colors? So they have the French, basically the French flag. I think there's maybe eight or nine of these fighter jets. And they have the French, the colors of the French, the French flag coming out from behind them. And they're coming straight towards you. And we're riding up the Champs-Élysées up towards the Arc de Triomphe. And it's just like people everywhere. And <laughs> you're like, where am I? What is this? This wow. is crazy. It's like so goosebump inducing, I imagine. Uh, NBC had you keep a video diary during the tour. And uh, you shot the entries while you were eating or on the team bus. And uh, I can't say I was <laughs> prepared for this moment. What I'm going to do now is walk through the bus completely naked and introduce you to all of my teammates. Let's see how it goes. First up, Pierre Roland. Then we have the Colombian Justin Bieber of cycling. Rigoberto Urán, superstar. Simon Clark, married to an Italian woman, bit of an international Casanova, has finally settled down. Now, Taylor, Finney, they don't actually show you naked, but your teammates are obviously getting a kick out of this. Why were you naked? Well, they, I mean, there's a lot of nudity on, on the bus, if you can imagine. We all finish our bike race. There's two showers in the bus, and they're in the back. So everybody walks back and forth naked. Um so you get to know you get to know all of your teammates quite intimately. <laughs> I, I think that's uh, that's kind of normal in in uh, in team sports in general. But yeah, I was just having uh, I was just doing whatever with those uh, with those video diaries. It felt kind of like I was giving a giving a small Snapchat tour of the Tour de France on NBC. Uh, the guy that you called the Colombian Justin Bieber is Rigoberto Uran, who came in second in the Tour de France. Uh, he's also going to race in the Colorado Classic next week, which you'll be a part of. How much do you consider his second place finish a victory for yourself as his teammate? Well, I mean, he did, he he had an amazing ride. He was really consistent every day. Um, never faltered all all we could do as a team was was rally around him and believe in him um and help him out as much as we could but at the end of the day at the end of the stage each day you know it was 
he was the guy making that that big that big effort so if anything it was it was very inspirational for us as a group um i don't think of it as you know a personal victory for me uh mm. i but i take a lot of inspiration out of it and i'm very proud of the way that the team wrote and i'm proud of the way that that he wrote um and it just it changes the the whole atmosphere of the team when you have somebody who's uh, up there consistently every day. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, Boulder cyclist Taylor Finney is my guest, fresh off the Tour de France and with an eye to the uh, new bike race in Colorado that happens next week. And um, I'm curious what you think about while you're on a bike for long, long stretches. And I, th- I think of this tattoo that you have that says pale blue dot, which is, of course, a reference to the photograph of Earth taken from space in 1990 and was the name of Carl Sagan's book. D- do you think of all of that big universal, I don't know, spiritual, I think you might have called it hippie stuff when you're writing? Um, sometimes. I, I think that I'm... Uh... I find that I'm possibly the only one that thinks of these sort of these sort of things when when we're racing. There was one stage of the Tour de France where it was really long. It was over 120 miles, and we just kind of started off a little bit a little bit slow, and we were already over a week into the race, so you're generally fatigued, and it's it actually feels harder to go slow. Um, at least mentally, because you kind of feel like you need to jumpstart, kickstart your body in order to get your mind uh, to follow. But um, I was riding along, and I was—I can tell you honestly—I was—I was bored. <laughs> <laughs> I had like f- there were probably five hours left of the race, and nothing was really happening. We were just riding. We were going through France. It was flat, and. Um, so I was thinking, like, how can I, how can I entertain myself? How can I, what can I think about right now? And and I ended up onto the topic of time and movement uh, as it correlates with time and um, whether or not me spending my life, at least my early adult life as a as a bike racer, um, the amount of movement, you know, that my physical body. Um, undergoes what that what that effect has on my on my aging process on my personal experience of time um it sounds very meditative actually um i I do want to ask about your family your father uh, davis finney was the first american to win a road stage of the tour de france and he's now battling parkinson's How, how has that affected you um man in a lot of uh in a lot of ways i don't know if we have enough time to fully answer that question uh but he was diagnosed with parkinson's in 2001 i was 11 so most of what i know about my father um you know he's he's been battling parkinson's for for over half of my life now and uh it's uh it's affected me in, in a lot of in a lot of different ways the the most positive ways that it's affected us as a family is it's 
really uh, allowed us to rally around him and around the family um, in general and our appreciation for uh, uh, the good days that he has, the good days that we have as a group um, is is much higher than I think it would be without this, uh, you know, battling this, this disease. I think that um, it really says something about you that when I ask how this affects you, you go with how it positively affects you. That's a surprise to me. And I understand that your your dad is riding an e-bike these days when he can. Um, I, I want to wrap up with the uh, bike race here in Colorado next week. So you won the first stage of the Pro Challenge, its predecessor in Colorado in 2015. Organizers ultimately said that race wasn't viable financially. And this new Colorado Classic is replacing the Pro Challenge in about 30 seconds, I'm curious, as someone who's competed in major stage races around the world, what you think organizers need to do differently for the Classic to succeed when other races haven't made it? Well, I think that they have this whole music festival yeah. um, surrounding the event uh, called Velo Rama, And that's really the first time that I've seen that done um, with regards to a bike race. Mostly you go to a bike race and it's just a bike race and well, it's cool, you know, that you can only see the riders pass by one time and uh, there's no real central place for people to go to uh, do something with all of the beer that they've been drinking. <laughs> so maybe its success will lie in its diversification. Taylor, thank you for being with us and sharing what's in your head. Yeah, for sure. Cyclist Taylor Finney of Boulder, he'll ride in next week's Colorado Classic. He just completed his first Tour de France. You can see more from Finney, including some of his Instagram highlights at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. A story next about better birth control for wild horses and burros. They now number 72,000 around the West, and the herds are growing. They often starve or die of thirst because there's not enough to eat or drink on rangeland. They can interfere with ranching. Some politicians want to lift restrictions on killing horses. That is hugely controversial. But equine scientist Jason Bremer has other ideas. He's at Colorado State University, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. So free-roaming horses have no natural predators. That means populations can double about every four years. And one project at CSU involves improving a treatment called Gonacon to temporarily stop wild mares from getting pregnant. I guess first off, Jason, what's it like to track these horses down and administer the treatment, which I think is done through darts? It can be done through darts. That's part of our experiment. Um, prior to that, we used the Gonacon in a manual treatment, uh, meaning that the horses were actually captured. And that's how I got involved was trying to determine whether they were pregnant at the time of the capture, and then they were administered the vaccination like you would a normal vaccination. Now, um, horses are pregnant for like a really long time, right? So correct. They're pregnant for 11 months. So um, that makes any work we do today really not 
testable for about two years because they're probably pregnant when we tested them. We know they'll have that full. And so it's to determine whether they get pregnant the following year, and then it still takes 11 months before they have that baby. So this is not quick research. What is it, what is it like out there doing this work? It's exciting. It uh, gives us an opportunity to um, not only study the reproduction, but uh, the behavior of these animals, which is largely what people are uh, concerned about as well. And why we're excited about Gonicon and the other vaccines is that we feel that these have a less effect on their behavior and their social interactions than the, the current PZP. PZP is what is currently used as a birth control device. And your goal is to limit the effects as much as possible on their social interactions, I guess. Correct. Um, Because the mare has an 11-month gestation length, that really means she's pregnant most of the year. Um, As such, she's not behaving in a way to attract the stallion and the herd stays calm. In the case of the PZP, where the mare doesn't get pregnant, then she cycles every 21 days. And so every 21 days, she's actively seeking the stallion with behaviors that um, are completely different from those when she's pregnant. And so that Hmm. could potentially affect her dynamics. So what kind of results are you seeing so far with what you believe is better birth control for horses and burros? The data for the Gonicon shows that a single dose um, will decrease fertility somewhat, but that when they're boosted, uh, it's 100% effective. And so in this most recent research, the first um, vaccination decreased fertility. They were revaccinated four years later. And at that point, none of the mares that were vaccinated became pregnant. Uh, The year after that, only 16% became pregnant. And we're following those for the next four years to see exactly how that works. But there has to be a booster. In other words, you have to get to the horse twice? Exactly. Okay. Doesn't sound like easy work. How do the horses react to to being darted? Sounds rather unpleasant. It it does sound unpleasant, but it's remarkably um, unbothersome, I guess. Uh, The horses that are darted are oftentimes standing still, grazing. Um, And in many cases, they will not even pick their head up. They, The darts apparently don't bother them much more than being bitten by a fly or whatever. But we see very, very little reaction by those animals that are darted. You've been attuned to that, watching that as part of this, I gather. Correct. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with equine scientist Jason Bremer about better birth control for wild horses and burros whose numbers have grown throughout the West. And I want to talk about another possible approach here. Uh, That is basically sterilization of mares, uh, taking this, I I suppose, a step further. Tell me about where that stands. Correct. Um, We are also investigating the possibility of stopping the mares from cycling altogether. The idea is potentially uh, to put the mares in a a premature menopause is the way we like to think about it. All horses are born with all of the eggs or oocytes that they'll ever have. And if we can, in a single treatment, keep those eggs from developing, then she simply won't ever um, ovulate and she'll never become pregnant. And that would be a single dose permanent sterility. 
And the idea would be to do that to some mayors, not all. That would be a decision, obviously, for the BLM or mm -hmm. the Park Service, depending on whose horses. But that, if it is permanent, then that would be another tool for them to decide how many animals they want permanently sterilized versus how many might have a reversible sterilization and could come back into fertility at a later time. Oh, I see. Reversible. But it sounds like that could be awfully controversial, just the term sterilization. It potentially could be controversial. I think anything with these wild horses is controversial because of what they represent and um, what people think about. Um, but as you described in the opening remarks, uh, watching a horse starve to death or die of dehydration or some combination is a, a much, much more controversial thing. And if we can help avoid that, that's really what we're after. Is there any sense that, that um, any of these developments in, in drugs and approaches affects the foals, has, has any effect on the babies? We have, we have looked into that um, with all of those except for this latter one that we've described. Uh -huh. um, and there are absolutely no effects whatsoever. Uh, their health, their well-being, their growth, and even their own fertility following uh, when they reach puberty themselves. Why does so much of this focus on mares and not stallions? That's a great question because um, a single stallion can obviously father many, many, many um, foals and a single mare obviously is only responsible for her own. If we were to sterilize a certain population of stallions, uh, there are certainly others out there that would be willing to fill in the gap, so to speak, and, and father the foals themselves. So it's more um, efficacious, that is, you get more bang for your buck if you focus on the mayor, is, is what you're saying. Correct. Okay. Uh, the sterilization we have talked about thus far, right, would be a, a, a drug. What about surgical sterilization? Um, well, the, the, when we say a drug, these are actually vaccinations. And Vaccination. so we are um, basically, in every case, um, causing these horses to have antibodies against their own um, proteins in their body. Uh, ster surgical sterilization is certainly 100% effective, uh -huh. but you would have to capture each and every animal. Um, with every surgery comes danger. Um, and, and there are rules about how these horses can be handled as well. There are. That's, there are many laws about, about that and. um Again, depends on which agency is is managing which herd of horses. And, and speaking of stallions, there's there's just no evidence, I guess, from your research that if the mares aren't all that interested in them, it doesn't affect the social dynamics. Correct. As huh. a matter of fact, that actually um, makes them a little bit stronger. It's when the mares are constantly seeking a, a partner, a mate, um, that there's some disruption in their behaviors because there are other groups, bachelor stallions, that will continue to approach these herds. Over the years, thousands of horses have been removed from public lands and kept in holding pens. Their upkeep costs the federal government tens of millions of dollars. Uh, there has been a fairly effective and relatively cheap fertility control for wild horses in the past, as we've said. Why hasn't the BLM just used these methods to keep herd size under control? I couldn't speak for what the BLM is or isn't doing. They're employing every possible 
tool that they have, and they are using PZP. Um, they are obviously looking at using this Gonicon, um, and if our newest um, vaccines work, I think they would implement that. Yeah, um, how far off do you think that would be? That'll be a couple of years. We still have to prove exactly what you were discussing, that uh, it would be uh, safe for pregnant marriage, and um, we haven't gotten to that that point yet. Um, but to answer your question, I'm it's it's difficult to track every single one of these horses and know which one's been vaccinated and because both PZP and Gonicon um, are much more um, efficacious if they've been um, boosted, that would mean every animal that they treated would have to be treated twice. And at 70,000 animals, if half of those are mares, that's 35,000 animals to find and treat twice. I mean, just out of curiosity, how do you how do you differentiate which uh, out in the field, which horses have and haven't been reached? That's a great question. It depends on the herd and, and who's helping um, those managers do that. We've got some amazing volunteers who know the individuals in smaller herds. Um, but and, and recognize them by sight, not because of some them. special tag or something like They're that. They're not correct. That's by their own color markings and the herds that they roam with and all of that. But tracking that is is not an exact science out there. No, they literally are out in the field watching uh, these horses, and in many cases, they'll go out once or twice a week and then simply take notes as to which animals they can find where. What motivates you to work on this? Oh, great question. Um, probably passion for both the horse and uh, intrigue into reproductive science, and uh, this is a, a great way to to do both of those. To blend the two. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. That is Jason Bremer. He's a professor of equine science at Colorado State University, and he's working on fertility control methods for wild horses and burros. We've posted photos of wild horses and the researchers at work to cprnews.org. Police dogs in Colorado may be overqualified. Some are still trained to detect marijuana. The world of legitimate pot complicates things for police and their canine partners. CPR's Sam Brash reports. Deuce is a three-year-old German shepherd with the Aurora Police Department. His handler, Sergeant Brandon Samuels, shows off a typical training exercise. Right now he's not alerting, he's searching, but he's not alerting, he's not giving me any sign. Deuce sniffs a barbecue grill and tables outside a police station. Then he sits and fixes his gaze on a trash can. So this is the behavior we train him to do. The sitting and the staring after they've pinpointed on the odor. Samuels reaches inside. So what we're seeing in there, there's a pound of marijuana down here in the trash can. So he was absolutely right. Good boy. Of course, marijuana is legal in Colorado. But the Aurora PD, like most other agencies in the state, still trains its dogs to detect pot. As long as marijuana is still illegal federally at larger scales, we'll continue to train until there's other clear direction. By clear direction, Samuels means guidance from the courts. He got some last month. The Colorado Court of Appeals ruled the scent of marijuana alone cannot justify a car search. Here's the issue. Most drug dogs, like Deuce, can detect lots of drugs, not just pot. But he gives the same signal for all of them. It comes up in court. Well, why doesn't your dog raise his right front paw for meth and his left front paw for heroin? Well, that's just not something dogs can do, says Samuels. 
And that's why, in that appeals case, a three-judge panel threw out evidence in a 2015 drug conviction. Officers in Moffat County searched a truck after a dog alert. They found a meth pipe, but the court ruled the dog signal was not enough reason to suspect a crime. The dog sniff was in fact a search, and it could have been indicative of lawful activity. That's Jeff Wilson, a Denver-based defense attorney who specializes in marijuana cases. Think about it this way. Let's say Deuce could detect drugs or burritos. Should the police trust his nose? He could have found cocaine or your lunch. I do think this poses an issue for the retraining of dogs. Retrain them to ignore marijuana. Sergeant Samuels says that's not necessary. Colorado courts have already ruled a dog alert can only be part of the reason to search a car without consent. Deputies must first observe something else, like slurred speech or a possible drug deal. It's not going to affect us because that's how we've been doing things. I'm not just going to show up and sniff your car, and if my dog alerts on something, we go in your car. Some jurisdictions claim they have retrained their dogs. That includes Seattle, where marijuana is also legal. But Samuels is skeptical. Even if we stopped training marijuana today, never did it again, never touched it, never exposed these dogs to it, it's already in them. They already know. Canine units in Loveland and Greeley have taken the lead in adjusting to legal marijuana. As their dogs have retired, they've been replaced with ones that don't detect pot. Samuels has considered that option. I would tell you, me personally, down the road when we get new dogs, my recommendation will be that we do not train them on marijuana whatsoever and they are never exposed to it. But first, his department wants to see how that recent court ruling plays out. It's being reviewed by the Colorado Attorney General's office, and they may appeal it to the Colorado Supreme Court. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. I cannot stop listening to a song. I heard it for the first time at a restaurant and managed to get the waiter's attention before it ended. He ran to the music console, scribbled the title on a napkin... It's Should I by an artist named Aram Ray. Turns out she was born and raised in Colorado Springs. Her parents didn't let her listen to music as a kid. She says they were in a cult that saw secular music as sinful. But she became a mainstream musician anyhow. And Aram Ray is on the phone. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? I'm good. And before we talk at, at length, let's just hear this song. So, folks, give yourself over for a few minutes. On this track, she is vulnerable, raw, honest about just being wanted. Green light He's headed over to the west side He said he'd be around me Got this bottle from a friend of mine Been saving it for someone special Been saving it for tonight 
Should I hide my excitement, put on makeup or wear a dress? Should I hold back? Or should I let go? Should I put on a record? Or should I just play the radio? Should I? Should I? Should I just take it slow? Working so hard to move forward and higher Feels like my heart's been beating backwards I'm gonna slow it down Should I hide my excitement, put on makeup or wear a dress? Should I hold back? Or should I let go? Should I put on a record? Or should I just play the radio? Should I? Should I? Should I just take it slow? Should I just take it slow? When I just want Should I? By artist Aram Ray, who was born and raised in Colorado Springs, and she's on the phone with us from New York, where she lives now. And uh, wait, what's this song about? What does it mean to you? It's just about what happens in your conscious walking around the house or wherever you are. For me, it was, you know, someone coming over and um, just um, the thoughts that passed through my head about playing cool or or showing an effort. Sometimes showing an effort can be compromising, you know, or can be vulnerable. It can be vulnerable. It strikes me that even singing about the decision is quite vulnerable. Um, what, what, is, uh, what is it like to open up about that in a song that, you know, potentially millions will hear? I think we're all pretty similar, so it doesn't worry me at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whether we act like it or not is a whole other story, but I, I think people really care when it comes to someone else that they might care about, you know. Yeah, and the question is how much how much to play play your hand. I understand you wrote that song in about a half hour, is that true? Mhm. Yeah. It was just it just came out. <laughs> it just came out. My friends were making a track 
and it was more um, electronic and um, beats behind it. And I was like, okay, give me the microphone. I have it. And then just sang the, the whole thing down, except I changed the bridge, like the I just want to rush in part almost like a year later. But um, yeah. It just came out like that. That's the best feeling. I see. So th- this was born of another track that your friends were working on. And yeah, kind of. I understand that you recorded it at a friend's house. There's actually noise in the background, if you listen closely, which I have about a hundred times. Um, there's <laughs> birds chirping in the background and like some shuffling. It's not It's not a quiet studio sound. Do, do you like that? Yes, I loved it. I I thought that I would edit that down or take some of it out, and it was just a one take, and um, it just worked so well. It just sat in its place, and sometimes you just can't argue with those things. Um, So I think the key a lot of times is to stay out of the way as much as possible, and this is just one of those magical moments. Do you prefer prefer it to being in in a, you know, kind of quiet studio? It depends what type of music it is, but sometimes I can feel suffocating. Um, And in this case, it's like you said, it's so real. And um, the birds and all that, like that was just at my, you know, my friend's apartment. And um, it's it's just real. It's just just part of the story of the song. So an extra layer, perhaps of vulnerability, uh, even in the recording Mm -hmm. itself. So, uh, Aram, mm-hmm. as I said, you grew up in Colorado Springs, and you say your parents were in a cult that saw secular music as sinful. <laughs> My dad's going to be so mad at this. Um, yeah, basically, it was just music was never um, around the house or in the car. And um, if there was music, it was at church. And to me, it was awful, tasteless, preachy music. And... Um, it would have been different if we were at like a gospel church and there was some soul to it. But yeah, it's, that's what it was. But for some reason, even I went to a Christian school, kindergarten and first grade, I was always put into the music programs. And I don't remember ever even really auditioning or something. It's just I was chosen to do those things in every school I went to, which was almost weird to me. But I just, to sing seemed like it was my past from kindergarten. You said your dad's going to be mad at you. Why? <laughs> oh, I, you know, people change. Life changes. So, yeah. No, it was just joking because I was excited to tell him to listen to this today. He's still in Colorado Springs. I understand your parents are no longer a member of this religious group. No, 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 no. no. They're not together anymore. But what, what do they think of your secular career? I think they're very proud of it. And um, it's an interesting industry, especially nowadays, to make a living being an artist in the music. Um, And I'm really, really fortunate. And um, so I'm just keeping going and trying to be better all the time and better writer and better singer and, um, you know, love playing for people. I think that's more church than most church, so... That is church for you. Yeah. I'm just yeah. curious, in those days when you were exposed really only to church music, um, were there, I don't know, pop or rock stars that you would sneak a listen to? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mentioned uh, Paula Abdul a lot because 
she was a dancer and singer, and she was also with that cartoon, uh, the, the tiger. Oh, in the, um, in the music just, video, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I loved her. A lot of music I would hear from, what, oh, gosh, there's a song that my cousin listened to from like the Commodores or somebody like that. And like from my friends, I would hear about people, you know, yeah. I was really not clued up to pop culture until I was older. That is singer-songwriter Aram Ray, and you can listen to her song, Should I, in full. If you'd like to hear it again, it's cprnews.org. It's off her new unplugged EP, Sub Rosa. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.